With her winning smile and delicate features, Catherine Kelly looked more like a movie star than a hardened criminal. She always wore the finest threads and sported the most expensive jewels. The best part? She never worked a day for any of it. Well, not honestly, anyway. Her career was crime, and she was one of the best in the game. In 1933, Catherine took the FBI on a ride the likes of which no other criminal could ever match. So buckle up, listeners. This here's about to be a wild one. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we followed Catherine's transformation from humble farm girl to rum runner and gangster's wife. This week, we'll explore how Catherine and her husband got into the snatch racket, kidnapping Oklahoma's wealthiest oil man. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in your face flavor orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either, but it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice, anything but subtle. By 1933, 28-year-old Catherine Kelly had everything she'd ever dreamed of. A closet full of clothes, jewels to rival any queen's, and the latest luxury car parked in her driveway. But no matter how much she had, there was always a part of her that wanted more. To call her materialistic would be putting it nicely. No, Catherine was greedy. Before we get into Catherine's psychology, please note I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. In a 2014 study, researchers Houdela Kreckles and Mario Pondelaire defined greed as an insatiable desire for more resources, monetary or other. 
Kreckles and Pondelaire further noted that greed may have evolved as an adaptive trait in resource-poor environments. By acquiring as many resources as possible, greedy people might feel more confident of their future resource access during times of uncertainty. As we discussed last time, Catherine came from humble beginnings. Growing up on a farm, she likely lived with the feeling of never having enough. As such, it's possible she obsessively gathered more than she needed as a survival mechanism. Perhaps she wanted to decrease her anxiety about a future that was becoming less certain by the day. With prohibition coming to an end, Catherine's lucrative bootlegging operations would soon dry up, and the longer the Great Depression lasted, the more fruitless robbing banks became. Simply put, most Americans had no money left to deposit. Fortunately for Catherine, a new criminal venture was emerging. By 1933, Kidnapping was a nationwide scourge so common, the New York Times dedicated a regular feature to updates on high-profile cases. Insurance companies even started offering kidnap coverage. While the country's richest had avoided the worst of recent suffering, they now had a target on their backs. It got so bad that social elites began hiring private security for themselves and their families. Even so, enterprising criminals like Catherine were undeterred. If anything, she likely saw the heightened security as a challenge. You see, when the snatch racket first began, it was as simple as grabbing a target off the street and waiting for the cash. Chances were that the authorities wouldn't even find out what had happened until the victim was safe at home. And by then, the abductors were already states away. That said, kidnapping definitely took both brains and skill, two things Catherine prided herself on having plenty of. And with her 38-year-old husband, George Machine Gun Kelly, beside her, she had the muscle, too. They'd been married just three years, but in that time, George had gone from an unknown bootlegger to a near-legendary bank robber. Of course, this was entirely thanks to Catherine. His nickname and accompanying mystique were her inventions. She proudly claimed that George was a sharpshooter so skilled he could write his own name with the Tommy gun. Naturally, everyone in the criminal underworld wanted to bring him along on their jobs. But as much as a hard reputation helped the Kellys line their pockets, it had its drawbacks. By 1933, the FBI had heard about Machine Gun Kelly, and he'd found a place on their watch list. But Catherine was oblivious to this development. She was too wrapped up planning another daring spree. After a few failed kidnapping attempts, Catherine had developed something of a system. She studied the society papers for the names and whereabouts of America's richest tycoons and magnates, people with more money than they'd ever know what to do with. It was within those pages that she learned of the marriage of 43-year-old Charles Urschel to Bernice Slick. Charles was an oil man from Oklahoma who had amassed a fortune of his own, and his new bride was also flush with cash. She was the widow of Tom Slick, another oil baron who'd left behind an astounding fortune. 
The Associated Press estimated that between them, Charles and Bernice were worth about $75 and $100 million back then. Adjusted for inflation, that would be in excess of $1.5 billion today. The number had Catherine practically salivating, and the Urschels sprang to the top of her list of marks. But while she prepared for the big score, the rules of the game began shifting. That June, Congress passed the Federal Kidnapping Act. It gave 36-year-old FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover and his team of agents unprecedented authority over kidnapping cases. Not only that, they could chase offenders over state lines. Unfortunately, local police departments weren't keen on handing over the reins to the new organization. As a result, the first wave of FBI-led cases ended disastrously. To cut out the uncooperative middlemen, Hoover created the first crime hotline for tips and information. That meant anyone who needed help could dial in and instantly have the ear of the FBI. Hoover was so serious about cracking down on the snatch racket that he even had a line installed at his private residence so that he'd never miss a report. Needless to say, the odds of completing a successful kidnapping seemed to be diminishing by the day. And yet, the Kellys weren't phased. Before the summer was up, they were ready to make their move on the Urschels. On the night of July 22nd, Catherine sent George to nab their prey. Al Bates, an old bank robbing buddy of theirs, went along as backup. Around 11.30 p.m., the men rolled up to the Urschel estate in a Chevy, likely expecting everyone to be in bed. Instead, they found the Urschels were wide awake, drinking and playing a game of cards with another couple. The foursome were out on their screened-in back porch, with the doors flung wide to dispel the late summer heat. What's more, Charles had recently fired his bodyguard. There was literally nothing standing in the bandit's way. So, armed with his namesake, Machine Gun Kelly burst into the home with Al close behind. Bernice screamed until George pointed the Tommy gun in her direction and ordered her to shut up. Once she fell silent, he looked the two men over and asked which one of them was Charles Urschel. When neither answered, George grew annoyed and threatened they'd have to take them both. Still, neither man responded, so George and Al gathered up the men and pushed them towards the door. But before they left, George gave the women a chilling warning. If they called the cops, their men were as sure as dead. Then George and Al hustled their captives outside and towards their getaway car. While neither kidnapper had been masked, they made sure to blindfold Charles and his friend before shoving them into the cramped back seat. Once the car was out of the driveway, Bernice sprang into action. Despite the warning, she was smart enough to know the kidnappers wouldn't kill Charles, not before they got any money, at least. Even still, she took the extra precaution and locked herself in a room with a telephone. Then she called Oklahoma City PD, who promised to send officers. But Bernice wasn't content to just sit and wait. Her mind reeled with what had just happened. She felt like she had to do something, anything. 
that's when she remembered reading about Hoover's national hotline. Around 2 a.m. in Washington, D.C., the special line at J. Edgar Hoover's home started ringing. Within hours of the abduction, the FBI was hot on the Kellys' trail. But by then, George had already put hundreds of miles between them and Oklahoma City. Charles had also finally identified himself, likely hoping that his captors would release his friend. Everything was going according to plan. But as pleased as George was with their progress, his accomplice seemed jumpy. Sure, things had gone fine, but not entirely to plan. They had an extra hostage on their hands, and now the question was what to do with him. Al wanted to make sure the other man couldn't talk. He warned George that they shouldn't leave another witness behind, but George wouldn't hear of it. Despite the name and reputation that Catherine had built for him, Machine Gun Kelly wasn't as vicious as people believed. He certainly wouldn't just kill an innocent man. That's why he chose the middle of nowhere to drop their excess hostage on the side of the road and speed off. George, Al, and a blindfolded Charles spent the rest of the night and a good portion of the next day in the car. To throw potential pursuers off their trail and make sure their captive was disoriented, they took the least direct route possible. It was well over 12 hours after the kidnapping that they arrived at the Paradise Farmhouse in Texas, where Catherine was waiting for them. When the men climbed out, she directed George and Al to an empty bedroom to deposit Charles for the night. But while Charles was kept in quiet solitude, the rest of the farm was bustling with activity. The property belonged to Catherine's stepfather and bootlegger, Robert Boss Shannon. It's unclear if he and Catherine's mother, Ora Shannon, were in on the plan from the start, but when they heard of the score, they got on board and agreed to keep an eye on the prisoner. This allowed George to focus on things on the farm and Catherine to take her 13-year-old daughter, Pauline, to her home in Fort Worth. There, she contacted Detective Ed Weatherford, a crooked local cop she'd recently befriended. Or that's what she thought anyway. In reality, Weatherford was working Catherine in the hopes that she'd turn state's witness against anyone and everyone in the criminal world. So when she called him for a quick chat, he came right on by. But Weatherford wasn't the only one with an ulterior motive. Catherine knew the detective had connections and hoped he'd warn her if anyone was after them. She also wanted to establish her presence in Fort Worth as a sort of alibi. When Weatherford came over, she not so casually told him that she'd just got back from a trip to St. Louis. But because he hadn't heard about the Urschel kidnapping yet, there wasn't much else he could offer Catherine just then. So she made sure the conversation was a quick one. The two said their goodbyes, and Weatherford headed back out. But as he passed Catherine's parked car, he noticed something peculiar. While Catherine had said she'd been in Missouri, she had a newspaper from Oklahoma laying on her front seat. Weatherford's detective senses were tingling. There was only one reason she'd lie about where she'd been. Catherine Kelly was up to something. Up next, 
Catherine's best laid plans go awry. Robbing trains, rustling cattle. Pop culture usually depicts the Old West as an uncharted land with no rules. But how much of that is true? Now you can find the facts, learn the lore, and tackle the tallest of tales in the Spotify original from Parcast, Wild Wild West. Every Thursday on Spotify, saddle up to the saloon to hear about the American frontier's most ruthless outlaws and heroic gunslingers. Wild Wild West features a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network and focuses on the legends that help shape American culture. From sharpshooters and explorers to family feuds and lost treasure, the West has a history more complex than you know. Don't be a yellow belly. Follow Wild Wild West free and only on Spotify. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now back to the story. In July of 1933, 38-year-old George Kelly and his accomplice, Al Bates, kidnapped 43-year-old Charles Urschel from his home in Oklahoma City. It was just the start of a kidnapping spree that George's wife, 28-year-old Catherine, had planned as a grand finale of sorts to keep them set for life. But thanks to the FBI's newly established hotline, the feds were on the case in record time. And unlike previous investigations, the local police were more than happy to hand the reins to the feds. That's because the special agent in charge of the Oklahoma City Bureau was an old colleague of the police chief. The serendipitous connection meant countless agents and officers were working together on the case. This made it nearly impossible for the Kellys to get their demands directly to the victim's wife, Bernice Urschel. Anything sent to the house would be intercepted by the FBI, something the Kellys adamantly didn't want to happen. So after nearly three days of brainstorming, Catherine finally came up with a feasible plan. They'd have Charles reach out to a third party. By now, the Kellys had moved the wealthy oil baron into a small shack that belonged to Boss Shannon's son, 22-year-old Armin. They'd also made sure to keep Charles blindfolded, and his ears were stuffed with cotton for good measure. But Charles's world wasn't entirely silent, just muffled. Through the fluff, he could even hear the changing of the guard. One day, George dismissed Armin so he could have a word with his captive. 
He removed the cotton from Charles's ears and told him that he was very disappointed in Bernice. He'd expressly forbidden her from going to the cops. Not only had she ignored that, but she'd gotten the feds involved too. Now, George explained, Charles needed to clean up her mess. They wanted a name, someone they could write to with their demands and instructions, who would then take them to Bernice without alerting the fuzz. Charles knew just the person. He was given a pen and paper and sat facing the blank wooden wall before his blindfold was removed. George warned that if he looked anywhere other than the page in front of him, it would be the last thing he ever saw. When the letter was finished, the blindfold was put back in place and Charles was left once again in the dark. The letter went to John G. Catlett, a friend of the Urschels from Tulsa. As soon as he read it, Catlett contacted Bernice and arranged to meet her at a hotel in Oklahoma City. Bernice's brother-in-law, Arthur Seligson, and family friend E.E. E. Kirkpatrick went with her, as both of their names were also mentioned in the letter. Needless to say, seeing Charles's handwriting sent a wave of relief over Bernice. While it had only been a few days since he'd been taken, she'd already received several fake letters from opportunists, attempting to take credit for the abduction. Now that they knew they were dealing with the real kidnappers, the authorities could finally make a move of their own. Of course, this first meant following the Kellys' instructions. A second letter came through demanding the largest ransom in U.S. history, a whopping $200,000, or the equivalent of $4 million today. Also included was a script for a fake classified ad. If their terms were accepted, the ad was to be placed in the Daily Oklahoman. When veteran FBI investigator Gus Jones took one look at the letters, he knew they were dealing with professionals. So Bernice did as she was told, getting the money and placing the ad that same day. Meanwhile, Catherine sent another letter from an address in Joplin, Missouri, to throw investigators off their scent. This time, the directives were for Kirkpatrick. He was to take the bag of cash on the 10 p.m. train to Kansas City and choose a seat in the observation car. Once the kidnappers were sure there was no funny business, Kirkpatrick would see two signal fires at various points along the track. After the second fire, he was to throw the loot from the train. If anything went wrong, he'd receive further instructions at the Mulebach Hotel in the city. Brushing aside his terror, Kirkpatrick agreed to the mission. As a precaution, he wrote a goodbye letter to his wife, asking Bernice to get it to her if he didn't come back. John Catlett decided to go with him for moral support. On July 29th, the men boarded the train according to the plan, but then everything started going awry. The observation car was usually the very last on the train, but thanks to the World's Fair happening in Chicago, two extra passenger cars were tacked on to accommodate more travelers. Not sure how this might affect the kidnappers' plan, Kirkpatrick and Catlett paid an attendant to allow them to stand on the tiny platform off the back of the train. They spent the entire night there and never saw a single fire. 
When they got to the designated hotel, a message was already waiting for them. A telegram reading, Unavoidable incident kept me from seeing you last night. We'll communicate about 6 o'clock. As promised, Kirkpatrick and Catlett received a call to their room just before 6 p.m. A man identified himself as Moore and told Kirkpatrick to take a walk in the direction of the nearby LaSalle Hotel. He was to bring the package alone. Out on the street, George watched Kirkpatrick coming toward him. The man was twitchy, practically jumping out of his skin at every bump and jostle. When they were finally shoulder to shoulder, George reached for the bag and murmured, I'll take that grip. In that moment, it seems Kirkpatrick felt a burst of confidence. He demanded some assurance he could pass along to Bernice. George told him that Charles would be home in around 12 hours. Then he yanked the handle from Kirkpatrick's hand and disappeared into traffic. Meanwhile, Catherine was back in paradise, watching over Charles. George and Al had been gone two days, and she was starting to worry. To calm her nerves, she sat chain-smoking on the porch with her eyes trained on the driveway, until, finally, she saw the car in the distance and breathed a sigh of relief. When the car stopped in front of the farmhouse, George jumped out and sprinted towards Catherine, wrapping her in his enormous arms and spinning her around. They'd pulled it off. Al followed the happy couple to Catherine's room, where they dumped their prize out on the bed and stopped to admire the largest pile of cash any of them had ever seen. But the moment was short-lived. After dividing the ransom money, the only thing left to do was figure out who was taking care of Urschel. To George's horror, both Catherine and Al agreed there was no way they could let him go alive. The feds were waiting for him at his home, and he'd give them up in a heartbeat. Even still, George did his best to reason with his partners. Aside from the night they grabbed him, Charles had barely gotten a look at them. They'd kept him blindfolded pretty much the entire time. And if Bernice or the other guy they'd nabbed hadn't been able to ID them yet, Charles didn't stand a much better chance. Fortunately for Charles, George was pretty convincing. He reminded Catherine that the Urschel kidnapping was only supposed to be the beginning. They still had plans to kidnap three more wealthy businessmen. If they killed Charles after they got the ransom money, they could kiss the other jobs goodbye. While George's rationale made complete sense, it seems Al couldn't care less. He was ready to take his money and run. So he did, hopping on the next train to Denver, Colorado. For all he cared, the Kellys could do whatever they wanted with their captive. Eventually, Catherine softened and agreed to let Charles go. They put a pair of sunglasses on the oil man to hide his blindfold, then loaded him into the back seat of their car. The Kellys took the longest, most roundabout route possible from Paradise toward Oklahoma, when they were within 20 miles of the city, near a town called Norman, they let Charles out of the car and sped off. With Charles out of the picture, the Kellys were flying high. They drove north through the night until they reached St. Paul, Minnesota. 
There, George's contacts helped them launder their score. Meanwhile, the couple did a little shopping. George bought Catherine a new fur coat and an $1,100 diamond bracelet. Then in Cleveland, Ohio, he bought himself a brand new Cadillac. It was there that they got the first sign that things weren't quite right. They heard that the feds had nabbed a few of the men who just helped them in St. Paul. Catherine knew they had to keep moving to keep the lawman off their scent. They drove the new caddy to Chicago, then continued on to Des Moines, Iowa, where they rented a hotel room and were just settling in when another bombshell landed. The feds had arrested Catherine's mother, Aura, and her husband, Boss Sherman. How had it all gone wrong so quickly? To answer that, we need to backtrack a little. While Catherine and George had bounced around the Midwest, Charles had made his way home. But after nine grueling days as a hostage, he was so haggard his own staff didn't recognize him. In fact, the guard at the door even tried to turn him away. Luckily, someone recognized Charles and called for Bernice to come quickly. Within minutes, lead FBI investigator Gus Jones was at the house, and by the next morning, Charles had given the feds more information than either he or the Kellys ever could have imagined possible. You see, Catherine and George had made the mistake of kidnapping a man who had a memory like an elephant. Since his early career as an accountant, Charles had been meticulous with details. In fact, it was almost a photographic memory. And it seems the trauma of being kidnapped only heightened these abilities. According to Jim Hopper, a Harvard teaching associate in psychology, being in a high-stress state puts the brain into super-encoding mode, so much so that the central details of the event get burned into a person's memory and they may never forget them. Even blindfolded, Charles had made note of seemingly every detail of his ordeal, and he recounted all of it to Jones. Jones deduced the oil man had been taken to a farm in northern Texas. Charles also said that he'd heard planes passing overhead, so Jones looked into flight routes and schedules. He studied weather reports for the area, looking for the closest match to Charles's description. But they didn't land on paradise thanks to Jones' analysis alone. Detective Ed Weatherford from Fort Worth had convinced the Dallas Bureau that the Kellys were almost certainly involved in the plot. So when Jones asked them for help, locals pointed him toward Boss's farm. With all the pieces falling into place, Jones organized a raid on the evening of August 11th. Taking several agents and Charles with him, a caravan of cars pulled up to Paradise Farm. When Boss demanded they state their business, Charles immediately recognized his voice as one of his guards. Then Jones sent agents to search the house. Inside, they found Aura, who'd ordered everyone to keep their mouths shut. But Boss's son, Armin, caved under questioning. He told them everything. With it all out in the open, Jones arrested Boss, Aura, and Armin. Now they just needed to figure out where the Kellys had gone. 
As luck would have it, the Dallas Bureau already had a few ideas where they could be. Before the arrest, they'd been watching Boss and Aura's mail for weeks and had already intercepted two letters from Catherine. From the address, they knew the Kellys had been in St. Paul. The second letter's return address was General Delivery, Indianapolis. Jones assigned agents to watch the post office there. But the real break came when they followed up on a bill from the Cadillac Agency in Cleveland. There, agents found out they were just three days behind the Kellys. The trail was hot, and the hunt was on. Up next, the nation gets swept up in the largest manhunt in FBI history. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Now back to the story. By the summer of 1933, the feds were closing in on 28-year-old Catherine Kelly and her 38-year-old husband, George. On August 11th, they arrested Catherine's mother, stepfather, and stepbrother for their involvement in the Charles Urschel kidnapping. That very same day, another accomplice named Al Bates was apprehended in Denver, Colorado. He'd been spotted by investigators from American Express who'd been looking for him for over a year. The feds did their best to keep the arrests quiet, but three days later, they were in all the papers, including the one in Des Moines, Iowa, which was how Catherine learned about her mother's arrest. The news infuriated her, and she knew exactly who was to blame. She'd had the entire thing mapped out perfectly, but George had failed her. She had told him they needed to kill Charles, but he didn't listen. And now her mother was in some terrible jail cell, locked away for God knows how long. They needed to help Aura. They needed to go back to Texas. So after a night of bickering, the couple climbed back into their car and headed south. During the long drive, Catherine came up with a way George could make it all up to her. In her mind, there was nothing but circumstantial evidence linking her to the crime. If they got caught, she wanted George to take the fall. 
It seems George truly loved his wife more than anything because he agreed to her demands. He was willing to do anything to make her happy. Psychologists call actions intended to help others pro-social behaviors. This includes everything from doing simple favors for someone to taking the blame for another's crimes. Such behavior is strongly influenced by many factors, so there are a few theories to explain it. One is the close relationship theory, developed by psychologist Dr. Josephine Korchmaros. This framework suggests that relationship factors, like emotional closeness and obligation, dramatically increase one's inclination to help another person. Generally, relationships don't get much closer than marriage, so it was probably a little bit of both that made George agree. Whatever the case, it seems Catherine was placated, and the two eventually stopped at Catherine's uncle's house in Coleman, Texas. There, they buried the ransom money behind a barn. The next day, Catherine went to a nearby town and bought a beat-up old car. She left it and George with her uncle, while she took the caddy to Dallas to hire a lawyer for Aura. When she returned a few days later, she was horrified to discover George was long gone. The FBI had rolled into town, intent on questioning her family in the area. When George heard the news, he split, leaving behind a one-word note that read, Mississippi. Catherine cursed her husband, calling him a damned fool. She knew he had a friend in the city of Biloxi, so she drove day and night across two states, but there was no sign of him. By now, she blamed George entirely for their predicament, and it was starting to feel like every woman for herself. So later that month, she wrote a letter to the FBI agent overseeing Aura's trial in Oklahoma City. In it, she promised to give up Machine Gun Kelly in exchange for her mother's release. If her pleas were ignored, she predicted, the entire Urschel family and friends would be exterminated soon. The letter was postmarked Chicago, but by the time it arrived, Catherine was already on her way back to Texas. She arrived in Waco in September, purchased a red wig, and checked into the Hilton Hotel. By that stage, she'd been on the run for a month, and she was exhausted. From her room, she tried to call the lawyer she'd hired for Aura, but before she could ask a single question, he told her not to call his office and hung up. It's possible he knew he was under surveillance. In a fit of frustration, Catherine got in her car and started driving to Fort Worth. She needed to talk to the lawyer one way or another. On the way, she passed a family of hitchhikers. They were the Arnolds, Luther, Flossie May, and their 12-year-old daughter, Geraldine. The bank had foreclosed on the farm where they lived, and they'd been roaming Texas looking for work. Likely suspecting that the Arnolds were just as desperate as her, Catherine pulled over and picked them up. After some time together, she told the family who she really was and confessed that she needed some help. For a very handsome fee, Luther agreed to be her go-between to help her make contact with the lawyer. With that issue seemingly solved, Catherine turned her attention back to finding her husband and decided to head back to Coleman. 
To Flossie May's despair, Catherine took little Geraldine with her, likely to help her blend in. At some point, Catherine and George finally reunited at her uncle's farm, but the weeks of separation didn't end in a tearful reunion. The first thing Catherine said to her husband was, I don't know if I should kiss you or kill you. But there was no time for either. The feds were still canvassing the area, so the pair lit out, taking Geraldine with them. They ended up in Chicago, where Catherine read everything she could about her mother's trial. Meanwhile, George tried reaching out to his underworld contacts, but between the national media craze and the FBI closing in, the Kellys were persona non grata. Anyone caught helping them was going to pay big time. Realizing that, George was too paranoid to stay in the Windy City, so they headed to Memphis, Tennessee. He had a few hideouts there, as well as an acquaintance named Langford Ramsey. They called him and arranged to meet up. That night, George told Langford that he was the infamous Machine Gun Kelly. At first, Langford didn't believe him. Even still, he took George seriously enough to agree to a massive favor. The Kellys sent him and Geraldine back to Coleman to retrieve the ransom money they'd buried there. But when Langford pulled up to Catherine's uncle's farm, he was turned away. The FBI had been sniffing around for weeks, and the uncle was sure he was being watched. He told Langford he'd better split while he could. Langford needed to let the Kellys know what had happened, so he located the nearest place to send a telegram. Meanwhile, Geraldine missed her parents and desperately wanted to go home. Feeling for the girl, Langford made the fateful decision to drop her off at the train station in Fort Worth. Last Geraldine knew, her mother was instructed to wait for them in Oklahoma City, so that's where she planned to go. Before boarding the train, Geraldine fired off a quick telegram, letting her mother know she was coming. But Flossie May had already been picked up by the FBI, and they intercepted the message. So when Geraldine arrived at the station, officers were waiting for her. Back with her mother, 12-year-old Geraldine told the cops exactly where to find George and Catherine. So in the wee hours of September 26th, three FBI agents and a handful of local police raided the Kellys' Memphis hideout. The notorious Machine Gun Kelly was arrested in his underwear, armed not with his iconic Tommy gun, but a simple 45. Hearing voices, Catherine came out of the bedroom in green silk pajamas. Taking in the scene, she put her arms around George, saying, "'Honey, I guess it's all up for us. The G-men won't ever give us a break.'" Though she knew it was over, Catherine demanded she be allowed to get dressed. After about 15 minutes, she emerged looking like a movie star in a slinky black dress, but she wanted it known that her best clothes were still in Texas. Needless to say, the media adored Catherine. She treated the perp walk to and from the courtroom like a red carpet, always made up and dressed to the nines. When she took the stand that October, she stuck to her story. The kidnapping was entirely George's idea. 
She batted her lashes and claimed she had no idea about that crime, or any of his others for that matter. She simply thought her husband had made all of his money betting on horse races. But Catherine put too much faith in her charms. Though she was right that the evidence against her was slim, she was still found guilty. For his part, George Kelly tried to keep his word to his wife. He wanted to testify that it was all his fault, but his lawyers wouldn't let him. Not that it made much difference. In the end, the couple received the same punishment, his and hers life sentences. But their stories diverged after that. In 1954, the notorious Machine Gun Kelly died behind bars at the age of 54. Meanwhile, Catherine appealed her sentence for years with little success. But in 1958, she and her mother were both granted a retrial. In the end, both women were released, thanks to a technicality regarding a handwriting expert. Aura and Catherine left prison together and lived the rest of their lives quietly in Oklahoma. Perhaps that's why history has turned most of Catherine's legacy over to her husband, George, the machine gun-toting gangster. Despite this, J. Edgar Hoover remained convinced that Catherine was the true mastermind of the pair. She lingered in his mind for years after the case. In his memoir, published in 1936, Hoover called her man-crazy, clothes-crazy, and a cunning, shrewd criminal actress. Misogynistic overtones aside, his assessment wasn't that far from the truth. Catherine Kelly was the beauty and brains behind it all. And don't you forget it. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with another episode. For more information on Catherine Kelly, among our many sources, we found The Year of Fear by Joe Urschel extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Jane O. and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hey, partners, it's Carter from Parcast. You've probably heard stories about outlaw Jesse James, sharpshooter Annie Oakley, and the horrors of the Donner Party. But how much of what you've heard is actually true? Find out on my new series, Wild Wild West, where I head out on the frontier to find the facts, learn the lore, and tackle the tallest of tales. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Wild Wild West, every Thursday, free, and only on Spotify. Spotify.